Hello, Pastor Steve Waldron here. We're so grateful that you're here with us on Biblical Archaeology today. Thankful to be your host. We're in a book I use as a textbook, the Popular Handbook of Archaeology in the Bible by Holden and Geisler. Wonderful book. Maybe God will move on some millionaires or billionaires out there to get copies in everybody's hands. It's that good around the world. I think it could turn the tide to belief in Scripture. But anyhow, pages 225 through 228, we're going to be looking at naturalistic explanations for the Egyptian plagues. We've done a few podcasts over the course of the last several weeks on the Exodus. And some have said that there is no evidence for the Exodus. I think Holden and Geisler have done a masterful job showing there is. And so we're just using a brief uh, portion here for a review of that, and uh, we'll bounce around from that. So God bless. Again, thanks for being here with us. Page 225, Popular Handbook of Archaeology in the Bible. Though the similarities between the biblical Exodus account of the plagues and the Egyptian sources appear to be more about coincidence, there are uh, some who continue to offer naturalistic explanations. For example, one such argument that the Nile could have overflowed its banks, carried red earth from the highlands in Ethiopia, thus have overflowed its banks, uh, turning the Nile red. But such silt is brown, not red, and cannot poison the water. The Egyptians normally let the silt settle out and filter it before drinking. The Nile is red, not, excuse me, is brown, not red in color. It never turns red naturally. No one has ever taken photos of the Nile uh, made red from natural occurrences. Something's telling me I've seen pictures of it red. Um, every Egyptian tourist guidebook and brochure in the world would be plastered with photos of the Red Nile to induce tourists to come see the biblical plays for themselves if this were an annual occurrence. I've got a friend of mine. He's real big on this theory, you know, that uh, we'll just keep going what they say, and I may bounce off some, but... Um, you know, that the frogs came from this and the flies came from the dead frogs and on and on and so forth. And even poor pop, and, but I'm like, yeah, how did rods turn to serpents? You know, <laughs> that's not natural. So uh, it appears to be more than coincidence. An even more popular idea holds that a form of red algae poisoned the Nile and triggered a domino effect of subsequent plagues. This notion continues to be espoused despite the complete lack of any scientific evidence of every red algae occurring in the Nile or anywhere in Egypt or East Africa. This idea claims further that as a result of the red algae killing the fish, the fish contracted anthrax, an infestation of frogs, and swarmed the banks of the river in search of a better life. Except anthrax cannot infect fish or frogs, only land animals such as sheep and rarely cattle. Moreover, the story goes the overfly of the Nile would bring about perfect conditions for an insect epidemic that could spread the anthrax from the frogs to the livestock, except as we just noted, anthrax cannot attack frogs. The locust hail, fire, and darkness that covered the land are said to be merely natural occurrences, though more severe than usual due to the alleged chain reaction kicked off by the excessively high Nile flood. The red algae, which does not occur naturally in Egypt and as Sparks observes, would be killed by the torrential Nile floodwaters as the normal algae are killed every year. You know, I'm thinking like three days of darkness, it can be felt. That's not natural. That's not a sunspot swarm or that's not a, a 
definitely not an eclipse. I mean, the three hours of Jesus wasn't an eclipse. Joshua's long day. Anyhow, again, no one can show photos of the Nile made red from any natural causes, so there's no naturally occurring phenomenon of silt or algae that turns the river red. These naturalistic explanations are not convincing for several circumstantial theological reasons in addition to the scientific contradictions and possibilities pointed out above. So uh, it's got a, a good chart here, scientific and factual errors in the red algae, red mud theory, the Exodus plague, and the ensuing uh, plagues. Um, and it really goes into the red algae and on, on and so forth and disproving the red algae, red tides, and all of that. And then it continues on. It's highly unlikely that all these natural factors described above converged on Egypt at the same time. In fact, some cannot occur at the same time as they'd nullify the alleged effect. Therefore, another miracle. Sometimes I'm trying to come up with a naturalistic explanation. I found that the naturalistic explanation requires more faith and more miracles than just what happened, as the Bible says. Um, for example, natural high floodwaters also kill natural algae. Red mud or mud of any color brought by floodwaters kills algae too. Receding floodwater cannot breed flies because it's winter, a regular seasonal occurrence, and flies would be hibernation then. Excess floodwaters would prevent the hypothesized extra silt from drying out quickly, being drawn in the air by wind to cause darkness and so on. I wonder if flies go into hibernation here in South Georgia. I don't know. I would hope so. Doesn't seem like it. It may be believable that two or three conditions come together by random chance, but nine or ten in the same sitting in just the right sequence? I'd like to see Peter Stoner's uh, probabilities on this. He's phenomenal. It is utterly unlikely. Clever attempts to link the alleged natural plagues in a chain as to avoid the extreme improbability of all happening by random natural chance at exactly the same time frame have failed. This is acknowledged even by authors of such theories. Several plagues always remain unaccounted for in the domino chain. And as just noted, some such plagues would actually nullify or prevent other natural plagues. You know, like even the fire running along the ground and the hail. I, just, I don't see it. But any, I don't know why the locust would come uh, because of something that preceded them. Naturalistic explanations do not account how the Hebrew slaves were spared from the catastrophic conditions while they were in Goshen, but the Egyptians who lived among or near them were not. Moreover, sandstorms and Nile floods do not discriminate based on whether you're an Egyptian or a slave. Unfortunately for the critical view, this type of selectivity is necessary to make the scenario believable. Um... And then natural forces do not discriminate based on the order of one's birth, the death of the firstborn. The theory also leaves unaddressed the historical narrative of Moses calling down these plagues at precisely the same time as the natural conditions occurring in Egypt. And uh, on and on and so forth. It, it's, uh, it's just an attempt to... Uh, some people try to just figure everything out. And some things are just acts of God. Check with your insurance uh, company. They assume supernatural events cannot possibly occur and then dismiss 
any account of supernatural event they may find, deem it non-credible since it describes a supernatural occurrence. Circular reasoning. Then they turn around and complain there's no evidence for the supernatural event. This is a classic circular argument and a fallacy. Similarly, the critics assume that God does not exist, since if he did exist, then miracles which are acts of God are possible. Next, we're going to look at archaeological evidence for the Exodus and the conquest, but that's going to be for another podcast, God willing, tomorrow. We just want to say thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. Pray for us, and we will talk with you later. Bye-bye.